2: Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeart3D Audio. For full exposure, listen with headphones.
3: In November of 2020, I spoke with Glenn Morgan. Glenn is a prolific screenwriter and producer, involved in writing and producing, among many, many others, The Lore Television Show, The Twilight Zone Reboot, and, most notably for Strange Arrivals, The X-Files. I talked to Glenn about the genesis of the show, how episodes were written, and much more. Why don't you start by introducing yourself?
2: Hi, I'm Glenn Morgan. I was uh, one of the exec producers of The
3: X-Files in the year one, two, four, and then the last two. And how did you... You know, how did you become involved in the X-Files? How did that start? Well, I worked with uh, my partner, Jim Wong, uh,
2: who are high school buddies from El Cajon, California, um, where probably many people have been abducted. (laughs) um, We were going to go on some other show, a romantic comedy that was the hit pilot of that season. And Peter Roth, who was the head of Fox TV, had said, you know, he he had helped us out a lot when we worked at, on 21 Jump Street at Stephen Cannell. And he's like, you gotta watch this pilot. I demand that you watch this pilot. And so kind of sort of career politics, we go, well, we'll watch this pilot the X-Files and tell Peter, thanks for thinking of us, but we're gonna go do this other hot show. And uh, Jim and I watch X-Files pilot and we're like, whoa. And I wanna do this show. And everybody said we were insane because we left the other show. And um, But it was just something that I really liked, and we met Chris, and we hit it off, and we're all coming from the same place, from which I expect we're about to talk about.
3: So so were you interested in, in sort of the paranormal and, and UFO stuff before working on the show?
2: I, I was. I'm really not trying to make this about me, but I think that in what we're talking about, uh, I feel I come from a place where probably a lot of Americans, or I've representative of the kind of middle America. I grew up in Syracuse, New York, which is upstate New York. I, I grew up in Manlius. Oh, okay. Well, I was there until I was 15. Okay. And yeah. you know, that's is, is digressing, but I've read that they call that the psychic highway. It's a 25 mile swath from Albany, 25 mile wide, 300 mile long from Albany to, you know, basically Niagara Buffalo. Yeah, And there you had, like, the Shakers, the Fox Sisters, the Mormon uh, origins, kind of. And so there's a lot of that haunted places. And my family, my great-grandparents were mediums and all that. So there was always, like, having seances and stuff. My brother and I are, like, watching TV. But we're familiar with that. Was always interested in that. I, you know, I can't remember if I knew about the hills before um, Chariots of the Gods. I almost said Food of the Gods, which is a great (laughs) movie too. But Chariots of the Gods, I was like reading all that, you know, and um, I was into that. And as a kid whose family was doing that, there was no skeptics. So I just like bought into it totally. All that stuff, I just bought into it. And um, it had always been an interest. And however... As a kid, too, my great love was, you know, NASA, Apollo, all the astronauts. And so the true science of that, and I felt that they both merged. The goal to go to the moon, to go to space, the the poetry of that matched the wonder of what else is out there uh, in that kind of, you know, UFO, paranormal area. They had something in common. And uh, then, you know, uh, going, getting older, you know, it was in horror movies and everything, but just like just life changing was Close Encounters, which is like the greatest thing. I went to, when it came out, my, you know, I was like, just starting to drive. And my dad was like, don't you go to that movie. You can't go drive on the freeway to see that movie. And I did. And I was driving home on the freeway. My dad was next to me. I'm like busted. That's how much I needed to see that movie for the second time. And so all that stuff, I just loved it. Um, Then when I get older and you start getting introduced to some skepticism and certainly working on the X-Files, the need to be Scully is the first time that I started looking at what's the other side of the story because you always had to have Mulder's explanation, you had to have Scully's explanation, and many times you'd have to have an explanation It was down the middle. So it was the X-Files and having to write for Scully that I started getting a little more grounded, a little more skeptical. So I hope that makes sense that I think that's where it comes
3: from. But I think you can see it sort of mirrors what was going on a lot with the culture. I was taking a look at some stuff various people had written and it's like the monster of the week episodes. And then there are the mythology episodes. So, was the mythology, was that thought of as being sort of a multi-season thing to start off with? How, how, what was the genesis of that?
2: Like the pilot was UFO. And the second episode was UFO. Uh, and then I think it introduced the deep throat, the deep background and the conspiracy part of it. And the network, um, being the network, their big goal was Mulder and Scully should help people. You know, every week they should help people, which is like as lame as it gets. And, but also they did not want UFO every week. What else could it be? And so sitting down, um, the first year was Chris, Jim and I, uh, Howard Gordon, Alex Gonza, who went on to do Homeland. And uh, Marilyn Osborne was there as a sort of junior writer. And we'd get together in a room and go, what can we do? And I think Alex And Howard became more comfortable with doing sort of weird science. And, you know, I just, I I grew up on universal monsters and I, you know, I love monster movies. And so Jim and I fell into that, not all the time, but for the most part. And so if you look at it the first year, there wasn't a lot of mythology, I think out of 22 episodes, five, maybe it wasn't a conscious thing. And first, it really wasn't a couple things. that happened was, in January of the first season, Jillian became pregnant, and so she was going to have her baby in September, and so that was like, well, she wasn't going to be able to work around the first few episodes that we were filming for year two, and so we all came up with like, Scully's going to disappear, and that really began the mythology, the need to tell multiple stories near the end of the first year. So I don't believe my memory is not that we set out to go from the beginning. We're going to be this groundbreaking serialized because that wasn't around then a little bit, maybe, but, um, we never set out to be this serialized show. It was necessity due to Julian's Julian's pregnancy that we sort of, um, shaped it in the end of the first year to go into her disappearing for the first few episodes in the second year.
3: So can you talk a little bit about, about the mythology through story? You know, that was established by Chris,
2: you know, that Mulder's sister had been abducted and what the background was with Mulder. You know, and I think those are things that you, you have, and when you're selling a pilot, especially back in those days, it's just kind of red meat for executives. And then you get in a room. Nowadays, you have to have the whole show figured out for five years. But back then, you gave them a piece of paper. This is what six episodes we could do. And they go, okay. So it just becomes a process of sitting down and going, what can it be? Um, Who's, you know, well, we're going to introduce a government conspiracy, deep background, so you bring in deep throat. And um, you bring up more UFO stuff. See, I'm struggling here because that stuff doesn't kick into gear really until the end of year one, year two, Mm -hmm. where the beginning of year two, we did this episode, Little Green Men, I think shows his sister's abduction. Right. So it wasn't really, if you look at that series, it wasn't until, again, Necessity brought it up and it really kicks into gear in the second year. Okay. And so you just go, well, what happens? Do Do we bring... Mulder's mother back? Do we, does, does, is she alive? Is she dead? And you know, it's just like a bunch of writers getting together trying to figure it out. But again, for the most part, nowadays they'll talk about a writer's room. We didn't have that. You know, we would come in and go, Hey, I got an idea. What if there's a stretchy serial killer that crawls through the, the vent? Oh, cool. All right, you do that. You know, we weren't really sitting in a writer's room working things out together, we're very much a team. Nowadays, you would say, "Okay, episode one, we talk about Mulder's sister. Now episode six, we're going to show that she's abducted." Now, I guess skipping forward, and you go, "How is she going to be abducted?" I think we start with a lot of what the accepted myth was—that it was at night, that there was a bright light. You know, um, you know it's it's real monster movie stuff, really, the mythology. And then you go, well, people know what it is by now, because of the Hill story. That you know, that was a movie of the week, right? I think with James Earl Jones, right. And the Close Encounters is like so huge. Everybody knew, you know, the the Barry being abducted is just one of the great scenes in cinema. And what can we do different? You know, and you had read some things where people had been taken out their window. or um, So, well, let's do that. Or let's make something up. How can we make it fresh? And I think actually that's where the damage to the mythology because you made stuff up because you needed to have something different for a TV show. that make sense?
3: Yeah, yeah. Was there... You know, were you reading, like, UFO books or or doing other kinds of research into, you know, cases? Oh, well,
2: uh, I had. I had done the... I knew the Hill books. Mm-hmm. Your first season brought back a lot of childhood memories um, of reading the book, not being abducted. <laughs> and, um, um, Just to make that clear. But what happened, what I didn't know was the community of ufology and so and we didn't have the internet like we do now i think it was aol and you know but i still when i wrote scripts i had to write stuff down and go to the beverly hills library and or ucla and look it up it wasn't like when i'm writing i just pull up google or so i was not aware of that i became aware of it. i went to a ufo show at LAX with Marilyn Osborne on the show. And it was just like blew my mind is what was going on there. Um, you know, the lectures, the level of what the Hill experience had turned into basically have, you know, communication, you know, we're in communication with beings from everywhere. It was, it was, Whoa, this is way beyond what I thought. I remember there was a table and they'd have like color-coded papers. And this was abductions. This was, I don't know, orange was space shuttle. Green was abductions. It was like an entire conference table of different pieces of paper with conspiracy and all kinds of stuff for every topic you can imagine. And the three guys behind there, one guy had a suit, one guy was kind of slobby, guy with a rock and roll shirt, and another guy just kind of somewhere in between. They were exactly a lone gunman, which, you know, becomes part of the myth. They're exactly, the guy, the guy with the suit has all these people around him. And he's like, give me, he's, he's, he's lecturing people. He's like, give me a, give me a $20 bill. We're all watching. He's like, this guy gives the guy his $20 bill out of his pocket. And he holds it up to the light and he goes, look at that magnetic strip. And I think none of us knew about him, this magnetic strip and a $20 bill. And everybody's like, oh, this is how they track you through the airport. This is how they do this. This is how do you do that? And then he rips it. He rips the guy's 20 and pulls the strip out. You know, the guy's bummed out because his $20 (laughs) bill is gone. But all of us are like, whoa. And so that was just mind-blowing to me what an industry was out there. And so I just like started taking from that and and Jim and Howard and Chris and everybody became introduced to that. I would go to like a hotel, a motel out in Burbank and I sat there for presentation on UFO ideas and stuff. And I gotta say a lot of it, I felt was just too far out from what we were doing.
3: Were there specific things that you ended up sort of Going deeper on uh, as you know research or inspiration or whatever for the X-files?
2: I think a lot of I think that would be a lot would be Chris because okay. as the creator and exec producer of the show, people would reach out to him and he might get some info on stuff or he might uh, interview people that we're deeper into these things than my, I like to research by sitting amongst all this stuff and watching it, Mm -hmm. you know, just like observing what's going on. I would get um, a publication every Monday. It was called science news. It was really a pamphlet. It was no more than 10 pages of findings in the world of science that week. There might be a bigger article and just like, Go through. And so for example, one week I saw they had an article that I think they had broken the record for drilling into the Greenland ice core. I don't know what it is, a mile remember, a mile or whatever. And they pulled out this stuff that had not seen the light of day for two hundred and fifty thousand years. You know, that had just happened. That was a fact. And then I go, Well, what could be in there? What could be in that 250,000? It's like, oh, okay, it's a creepy show. What's creepy? Like, I find worms creepy. Worms, snakes, they don't have arms. Right. They have too many arms, like a millipede? Forget it. I don't want it near me. And so I'm like, okay, oh, there's these worms, and then without 250,000 years of evolution, what would that do to us? And then that part, I would make up. I, I don't remember what it was. It gets into your brain and makes you paranoid or some stuff like that so that's how you make an X-File. you take that science truth and another truth and you try to fit them together by making stuff up inevitably people would go I read about worms that make you crazy and I'd say no no I made that up and they go no 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 I read that in the National Geographic I'm like I know you didn't because I made it up <laughs> It isn't even a thing that lodged in my head. I just flat out made it up. And it always fascinated me how often people would say, not, I read about the ice core from Greenland or the evolutionary traits of these worms. I heard about the stuff you made up and it's true. And so when I look at these abduction myths, where some of the conspiracy theories that are floating around now, you can see where there's bullshit that our people are believing. And um, in fact, there's an X-Files where Deep Throat specifically says, a lie is a best delivered sandwich between two truths. And I just, you know, know, um, I'm sure I didn't make that up, but that's to me, I always thought the best way to go about the mythology. So if you know that aliens come at night and you might take some other scientific fact, the position of the moon or something, then make something up, that's, that's how you did it. That's how I went about it. And I, I see that approach in other myths, contemporary.
0: at
4: purdueglobal.edu.
0: Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring?
3: That's really interesting, your your point about people coming up to you and saying that they'd read about stuff that you'd made up. Yeah. Um, and it, it reminds me a little bit of a season one uh, talking to Elizabeth Loftus where she was talking about mm-hmm. experiments that she did where, you know, just by mentioning something to somebody, they incorporate that into their memory. So if they talk to them again, I, I saw – I don't think it was one that she did, but there was a a special on PBS where they'd interview college kids, and they and they would bring up this incident. I, I think it was something about like you got, you know, arrested at the mall or something, mm-hmm. and and they'd be like, no, you know, no, we didn't. She's like, oh yeah, and they they'd kind of give some details, and the the college kids would say no, and but then when they talked to them you know, six months later and would bring it up, I guess it wasn't, it wasn't quite getting arrested. It wasn't something that big, but it was, mm-hmm. it was some like, you know, you spilled, you spilled a drink on a police officer or something. It was, it was, something, it was something like that. And then when they, when they talked to them again, the, the the certain percentage of the college students would talk about that as though it had actually happened. Right. So it didn't, right. it didn't even take much. You don't have to really convince people. You can just sort of tell them, Mm-hmm. And then they, right. they kind of internalize it and it becomes, you know, part of their, their lived memory without actually having experienced it.
2: <laughs> and I think it becomes, you're absolutely right. And there's been some good, my brother did an excellent X-Files in the last season. It was called the Lost Art of Forehead Sweat, which is all about memory and a lot of the Mandela effect. And, and I know, you know, Gladwell had that thing on, revisionist history about memory. And um, I think with the bulk of information, particles with the internet, with crossing cable news, with Twitter, you just get particles and they all get jammed together. And I think like maybe weeks later, you're like, oh yeah, I know, I heard something. It's just a mess. It's just really colliding, and we've lost the ability to go, what's your source? Or no, that was debunked. Here's how it was debunked. And, you know, a lot of the the skeptics or debunkers become like the party poopers. Because going back prior to my writing for X-Files, if you were saying the hills, you know, saw the ski lift, I'd go, oh, you just don't want to believe in it, you know, kind of thing. But... It may be a thing we were never taught, you know. I, I don't know. I, I think that's the that's the big problem is that we're not coming from a rational
3: spot. How do you think about the X Files as sort of a cultural influence, or 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 the X Files lasting cultural influence and and how people think about things? Because I, I do feel like more than ninety nine percent of shows. Like I think the X Files, um, you know, can can kind of change the way you look at things that are happening around you. Um, and I think could, and part of it I think it's the conspiracy stuff. But I think there's also, you know, the the interactions between Mulder and Scully. I think kind of model a way of thinking about, about things in some ways that I think affects the way people. uh, I mean, I wish it would affect them more, but, but affects the way people sort of evaluate things. Um, Have you, have you thought about that at all? Or have you, have you experienced moments where, where that's become sort of clear?
2: Um, That's, that's all I think it's, Beyond all of us that worked on that show, you know, I text a lot with Dave Duchovny, and that's like we're still trying to figure it out. In a lot of ways, you know, we're the last to be able to figure it out because you weren't trying to be this thing; you're just this us be cool, you know. But for me, there's a couple of things I would answer. I think the most brilliant thing that Chris did. Was I want to believe. Even, you know, Carl Sagan, very rational, science based, I think he'd want to believe there's other life. And so that answers both sides of the coin. Everybody wants to believe in they can find the answer of what special relativity is out. What's the next, where's all that, you know, is there other dimensions and all that stuff. And so if you're, that was the brilliance and why the show could be so popular, because it appeals to everybody. I think everybody wants to believe. Uh, my feeling about the whole, you know, it's, it's twofold for me. One, uh, I grew up, you know, Loving the monster movies and Psycho and the Exorcist and the Alan Pakula paranoid movies of Clute and uh, all the President's Men and Parallax View and certainly Close Encounters. And so all those came before us. You know, it's like you can say, oh, that sounds great. You go, yeah, but all those, Twilight Zone, oh man, all came before us. So when Doug Hutchison who played Eugene Toombs in the first season, who was the notorious serial killer. And Doug's not too far off from that character. He said that he was in a, a, like a department store bathroom in New York city. And he was washing his hands and he looked over and there was a dad and a little kid. And the little kid was just locked in on Doug. And When they're going out, the kid grabbed the father and goes, hey, dad, it's that creepy guy. And the dad looked at him and they both just leave. And so I feel like, okay, for all those Hitchcocks and Spielbergs that got me, I, you know, that was, you know, play it forward. However, the second thing is more disturbing. That if we played any part in the proliferation of this conspiracy stuff, I'd have great regrets. Because I think it's like ridiculously out of hand. You know, when we were doing that show, it was primarily for entertainment, you know, that, um, you know, there had been conspiracies. It's a ski geek experiments and Watergate, I guess. But for the X-Files is for the most part an entertainment. And if you've opened up the door to acceptance of things that are going around now, I'd I'd really feel horrible. I, 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 that saddens me.
3: Well, I think that was what, when I said before about Mulder and Scully sort of modeling, and that I wish people would sort of uh, internalize that a little bit more. Because I think I, I mean, I thought that was what was so great about the show as being coming from sort of the skeptical side myself was was that there was, I mean, it was like this this constant sort of evaluation. I think of them as sort of like Kirk and Spock as sort of these iconic two sides uh, <laughs> of, of the argument uh, type of people. So I guess I'm just saying that because from, from my point of view, like if you only had you know Boulder running around you know buying into everything that he that he saw or ran into or, or seeing seeing the worst possibilities, that would be one thing but but I think what made the show so great is that is that you see both sides and, it, and it's you know thinking critically and even when things seem to be real it's it, the reason why that's coming forth is because they're sort of interrogating it in a way that I don't think people do. So what are, are there things that we haven't talked about that you think are, are sort of important for people to, to know just sort of based on what you know about what I'm, what I'm doing in this, this season?
2: You know, I, I, I think, you know, I really, I think there's, you know, I think going to what you said a minute ago, the interesting thing, you know, Scully after a while was not, you know, when we started the show, you know, Scully never sees an alien ever. And by show 12, uh, she was seeing the ghost of her father because human nature or American nature, whoever it may be, it was like, she's just person that says, no. Mulder's more fun. Mulder's more interesting. Mulder's seeing weirder stuff. And so as the show goes on for ultimately 11 years, Scully bends towards him, you know, because otherwise the show becomes Scooby-Doo. Right. Where that, you know, just like the, you know, you just pull off the, the mayor, <laughs> the mask on the monster, the mayor, whatever. And so that's the thing that you forget is that she did, experience these things and leans more towards Mulder's experience, you know, and I think that's the benefit of the necessity of a TV series of keeping conflict and momentum going. But, you know, I wish that people the fun of being Scully going, you know, that's just, that's great. Those guys that you had that said, Oh, it was a ski lift. I'm recreating the position of Venus. All that stuff is fun too. go you know it's like you're not trying to prove anyone's that's the great part about the hills as well and I think a lot of the characters are trying to do X-files was they didn't ask for it they were going out minding their own business and and this thing happened to them and they love an explanation whatever it may be you know Um, and so you know, the, the fun of try, trying to be Scully in the first two seasons. You know, and also, I think if you asked, you know, that show to really try to find out, to think about, you know, where we are now. You look at the, the mythology in the 1930s, because that's where I grew up. Frankenstein was a scientist. He was bad. The villagers burned him down, burned down the castle and they got the monsters. Scientists, bad. The invisible man, he died. You know, they always come back, but that was like, he's bad. Um, in the fifties, the scientist is creating the trouble, but he was also solving the problem. Usually by going to the military, because that's what the fifties was like. Your trust in government. The sixties, you know, you start getting into the Andromeda strain and you had Vietnam and so then it's bad. And then at the end of the seventies, science becomes close encounters and you made nice communication with the aliens and you had Star Wars and stuff. And like, where are we now? Where what's our own mythology that we we're creating a myth about this pandemic that storytelling-wise, wherever you stand, storytelling-wise, if you were doing a pandemic, you would never come up with the head of a country is obstructing it. So what is it about science and conspiracy and everything we're at now? What is it telling us? You know, and I think if if you can use the X files as a gauge as to try to where were we then? What does that type of show tell us where we are now? Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeart 3D Audio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. This episode was
3: written and hosted by Toby Ball and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Josh Thane, with executive producers Alex Williams, Matt Frederick, and Aaron Mankey.
2: Learn more about Strange Rivals over at GrimAndMild.com and find more podcasts from iHeartRadio. By visiting the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring?